It's tragic, really. Shirley, are you here? We all have a story. We are contacting 911 for you. A dark secret wrapped in emptiness and regret. Quite frankly, I'm glad I did it. You know. They took her life. They just can't prove it. The Toll. There are so many layers to the story of Shirley Jane Rose, and we don't want you to miss any of it. The story keeps unfolding. So here's an additional look at The Toll. This is Nancy Simpson with The Toll, here with executive producer Jay Lashley. And joining us is Cloyd Steiger. He is retired with Seattle Police Department, 36 years, 22 of those as a homicide detective. And uh, Cloyd, now you work as the chief criminal investigator for the Washington State Attorney General's Homicide Investigating Tracking System. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Yeah, that is a mouthful. Um, But you (laughs) track murders in Washington, Montana, and Oregon. That's right. We used you as an outside expert for the toll. And we had some follow-up questions now that you've been able to uh, listen. And I want to say this about Cloyd. Cloyd, your audio was so good. We essentially didn't touch anything you said. Like, basically everything (laughs) you said went straight into the podcast. Yeah, that's a true story. Yeah, that's good. I'm wearing headphones with a microphone to make it better. All right, cool. Well, you sounded great. All of the information you gave was just right on super money. So Yeah, very relevant. All right. Well, if you don't mind, kind of set this up for the listeners. During episode one, we talked to uh, Officer Jack Sifford, who was the one who actually went out to the scene where Shirley Jane's body was discovered and took those pictures. When he described her body, he said that it looked like she had been tied up, possibly like in a hogtie position with her ankles like toward the back of her neck. Um, that's something that actually struck me as odd. And, and um, I just wanted to know what your take was after you heard that. Well, it's not necessarily uncommon in this type of a kidnap murder to control the victim and keep them under thumb. Uh, I would presume he saw furrows or something on her wrists or legs. I, don't, I didn't get the idea that the bindings were still on her when he saw her. I think it was the position of her body more than it was what he could see. Okay. Well, you got to be careful about position of body because um, when you toss something out, it just randomly falls in whatever position, right? I had a case years ago that someone said that the victim was posed in a Christ-like position with her arms out to her side and her ankles crossed. Well, that's just what happened when the first person found her and rolled her over. That's the natural position your body goes into. It had nothing to do with the case. There'd have to be something else, some kind of furrow marks or uh, maybe some sticky stuff from tape that was on the body. But they probably back then didn't look that closely for that kind of thing. Now, if I remember it correctly, her body was, though, bent backwards, like not the right direction, right? Correct. So could that actually happen on its own? That just sounds so bizarre. Yeah, well, if you're dead and and you're still fresh. You're just like a bowl of jelly, basically. The only thing that's going to keep you from going to any position is your bones. If they don't, if they're not broken, they won't bend there. You you end up in really weird positions: uh, head bent way back, uh, arms and legs in different positions. I mean, it's in and of itself, it doesn't mean she was bound like that. But I mean, may, she may have been. If she was, though, my question would be: Why did he take the bindings off? Right, and I don't know that he could actually see that. I, that's that's the way her body was positioned. But I guess my thought was if you tie somebody up, then you don't um, intend to immediately kill them? Could that be? Yeah, it could be. I mean, obviously, because you want to, there's no reason to tie up a dead person, right? So you just, you don't intend to immediately kill them. But again, he would have at some point had to take the bindings off while she was in that position. I mean, it just seems like no one would bother to do that. 
I, I need more. I need something on the wrists or the ankles or something, some type of a ligature mark or burrow to tell me she was tied up. Um, can you talk about maybe your theory of her um, likely not accepting a ride because she was so close to home? Yeah. I mean, when I watched the video that you posted on the website, I realized that she was last seen less than a block from home. Why would she accept a ride, especially from a stranger, uh, that close to home? It just didn't, it doesn't ring true with me. Now, when you say that, do you feel more as if somebody pulled her into a car or a different thing? Well, it could be one of two things. She was pulled into the car or someone she knew pulled up, and that's why she got in the car because she wasn't uncomfortable. It wasn't that big a deal to her. And you have all—you've always felt as if it. Your intuition is that it probably was somebody she knew, right? Right, because it's really difficult on a busy street to grab a, a girl and bring her, pull her into your car with nobody seeing her, and right. it just seems unlikely. And and the other thing is, ninety-five percent of these cases are done by someone the victim knows. Were there any other people as you listened to the toll season one? Any other people who stood out to you? Um, as you listened? Uh, well, you know, the one thing that I, I think I sent Jay an email about this, about when you walk to the point she was last seen on the video, this is on the video again, and you pointed out the house that one of her friends was at, and her friend saw her, but then you said the father was just leaving to go to his mother's house or something like that. I would talk to that guy. I mean, what? I, I, it may be, he may be completely innocent. But, I mean, coincidentally, he's walking out the house where she's seen, and a minute later, she's missing. I mean, that, I would zero in on him and say, what's this guy's background? Like I said, he may be completely innocent, but I'd certainly vet him out and make sure. That's really interesting, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, do you think that is, is that just the way a police officer would think or an investigator think right now, and they wouldn't have thought that way back then? Or do you think that was just an oversight? Well, good investigators and experienced investigators back then didn't think any different than we do now. It's just that we have a lot more tools at our disposal, right? I would say they had a hammer and a saw, but I have a complete construction company. So, I mean, that's the difference. If you're experienced, but again, this is a relatively small town. Nothing like this ever happens. They were probably overwhelmed. And so it's not unusual. I see these all the time in relatively small jurisdictions where they get big homicides that they're not experienced or equipped to handle. And there's nothing you can do about that because, I mean, that's one of the good things about living in that town is they don't investigate a lot of murders. So, but the other side of the town is when something happens, they might miss obvious things. I mean, that's just, that's just common sense to me. The guy was walking out the door and she was seen right there and she wasn't seen after that. Say, what did he see? Did Did he see her walk past that? Or did he pick her up and give her a ride? I don't know. That's what I'd want to know. Now, Cloyd, when you're talking about the police getting, like the investigators getting overwhelmed here in this town, are you just saying because in an investigation of this size, there's just so incredibly much legwork to do that they just don't have the manpower? No, I'm sure they devoted everything they had to this case because even though it does take a lot of legwork, but the real thing is that this is an overwhelming case. It's a very complex investigation. And unless you've done similarly complex investigations, you're not going to be equipped to deal with what's going on in this one. I'm sure they've investigated murders, but most of the murders they investigated were one guy shoots another guy and everybody knows who it is, 
or domestic violence murder right away. But these whodunits or uh, stranger, potentially stranger murders, they're exponentially more complex than an average murder. And I just want to say police may have questioned that guy. I, I don't know how much they questioned Yeah, they him. may have. I don't know. Um, but I'd, I'd like to see that. Yeah. Uh, here's something I'm actually going to reveal to our listeners as I reveal to you right now. I recently learned from Shirley's youngest sister, Shannon, that the man who sold Shirley's mom that bad pot and then she had the party, um, the mom saying that that was really the only theory she thought that made sense at the time. Um, Shannon revealed to me that her mom told her that was Steve Fletcher who sold her the pot. So that put oh, Steve yeah. Fletcher directly in the path of Shirley Jane Rose. What does that do right. to the landscape of the story? Well, you know, again, I would take that. But the problem, what I saw is in, in listening to the podcast, and this is a mistake people make all the time, is they zero in on their suspect right from the beginning and spin their wheels trying to prove it's him. And if they're right, great. But if they're wrong, then they've you know lost a ton of very valuable time. And you can't, you, you can't, Decide what the answer is at the beginning. You have to go in there and just follow the roadmap of the evidence wherever it takes you. And if you can have working theories, it may have been this guy, but don't zoom in on that. And it sounded to me like they zoomed in. It was him right from the beginning. And that's a huge, huge mistake. Uh, Coyd, maybe this is too much just putting you to it, but when you listened about Steve Fletcher, just what was your gut instinct that like it very likely might have been him or he's probably a guy that just was in the wrong place at the wrong time and just always got accused. Well, I didn't have, my impression wasn't that this is the guy. It was, but then again, I'm not pressured. So I don't know, but I mean, it didn't, I didn't, he, I didn't, he didn't strike me as likely being the real guy. My next question. I actually found one of the men um, who police suspected could have been involved. It was one of the men whose names we actually beeped out in episode one, a private investigator helped me track him down. And I just want to know, I did approach him. What's something that I should have been looking for when I asked him questions? And by the way, he wasn't that cooperative, but what are some of the things that I should have been zeroing in on? Well, some clues are when you start asking him about this case, he goes, yeah, I don't really remember that. Hmm, who was it again? Because this was the 9-11 in Springfield, Missouri, when it happened. Everybody knows where they were when they heard it. Everybody knew about it. It was big news. So if he denies remembering the case, that's a big red flag. The fact that he's not cooperative, I mean, that could go either way. Maybe it's not cooperative because he is the guy or he just he doesn't trust authority figures or the news or whatever. I don't know. He really just kept asking, who are you? How did you find me? Right. So, yeah. uh, Jay's impression was very <laughs> like well, you, you just kept telling him I'm Nancy Simpson from KTTS. I'm doing this podcast. And he would say, who are you? You told him two or three times, and he just kept acting like he didn't understand. You were telling him clearly. Well, did he? Did you mention the case, the Shirley Ann case, to him? Yes, I did. Uh huh. And, and he and said, what was "Who? What? What? Exactly what you're talking about?" Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe you know. He may not be the guy, but maybe he has information, knows who the guy is, or is hiding something. But. Uh, I don't know why he wouldn't talk to you. And then and, and asking questions. When someone repeats questions back to you over and over and over again, that's a diversion tactic, right? That's not. And when he said, who, who Shirley Ann Rose, he knows who Shirley Ann Rose is. Cause it's, it's big news and it's back in the news because of this podcast, he probably heard that there was a podcast about it. 
I don't know. I'd, I'd like to, I don't see a video, but I'd like to see the video. But uh, there's, there's little, little tells you look for. And why doesn't he want to talk to you about it? I have audio, but I don't have video. I have to cut in here. We have the audio of my conversation with this guy, and we are releasing it. Listen at the end of this episode for details. He wasn't like, I don't know what you're talking about, or I'm sick of people asking me about this. I want this to go away. None of that happened. Right. Yeah, that would have been a little more credible that he's not the guy if he's doing that stuff, because that's somebody who might have been accused of it long ago, and it keeps coming up with say. Look, I didn't do it. I'm tired of people asking me about it, you know? I'm sure if Steve Fletcher was still alive, he'd be saying that if he didn't do it. Um, there was a—I didn't have a lot of information, and um, it was the murder of Tina Sue Spencer. She was actually 18 years old. As I said in the podcast, she was tagged as a runaway, but she was actually an adult. Her body was found one mile away from Shirley Jane Rose's body on that property up by the lake north of Springfield, and it was the same manner of death that appeared strangulation. What what do you in a year, uh, just a few months? So I think a year or less than a year uh, difference. What do you think right. about that? Well, I mean, it could be the same person, but that's a big spread on the age of the victims. Not that some people just kill people because it's convenient and they found them. They don't necessarily have a specific victimology they're looking for. But usually, guys who kill kids kill kids, and people that kill adults, kill adults. And of course, was the, was she, was her sex, sexually assaulted and was there evidence recovered or anything like that? That's the questions I want to know too. All right, Cloyd, I have a question. My dad's biggest hang up when he listened to this podcast was the children not being interviewed. Can you just expound on, you talked about it in the podcast, but can you just talk about this more? Like my dad just thinks that is inexcusable that just any investigator of course would never not interview the kids. Do you feel that way? Just can you expound on that? Are you talking about the, her her siblings? Yes. Yes. I, they should have been investigated. They should have been interviewed because they know stuff that adults might not know. And they might know stuff that's going on in the family, give you the family dynamic. And they may have their own little theories. And even though they're kids, you have to listen to them, right? They may tell you about somebody that Shirley Jane was saying was been bothering her or something, or they didn't like mm-hmm. that guy. Or, you know, they may not have direct information, but there, it'd be interesting to hear the other stuff they had. And that was a mistake. They should have been interviewed. Now, it's too late now because they've forgotten everything they would have said then. It's a detail that for me has always seemed nearly inexcusable. Just like, how could you not think of it? I mean, I've even heard people go so far as to suggest, you know, some level of corruption just because they're like, there's no way. They would have ever not done that. Do you feel like that's blowing it out of proportion? Yeah, I, I hear that all the time. It's a corruption case. I said it, it, it's not necessarily corruption. It's a little bit of incompetence. Again, they're overwhelmed. I can't sit back here years and years later and tell all these detectives what they should have done because I wasn't there and I didn't have their, you know, what their or toolbox contained. But, but yeah, if it was today and I was doing it, I would absolutely interview those kids and it should have been done. Anything else stand out to you when you listen to the podcast? Uh, just, I think I sent an email about the fact that when the, when the uh, current supervisor of the detectives was talking about how, how little evidence there was that he said, mentioned there were some hairs and, you know, they have just in the last couple months developed a technique to get cellular DNA from a hair shaft that had never been possible before. So they need to look into that and, and, and see if that's a, 
a viable option. Again, I would have her clothing impact. I'd have the clothing from the girl, uh, 18-year-old that's up the, up the line impact, and see if you get uh, touch DNA and then see if it's the same guy. But uh, that's, those are basic things they need to do to move this case forward. You hear about these cases all the time, all these cold cases getting solved that were thought to be unsolvable years ago. That's because the detectives are thinking outside the box, and they're using modern, up-to-the-minute techniques like the MVAC, like genealogy, to get uh, and answer these questions. So, I mean, like I said, they may find DNA that's not in CODIS. Then go the genealogical route and have someone trace a family tree. Because this case, no case anymore, is unsolvable. None. Wow, that's a big statement. That's assuming you have a body and evidence. I mean, there are people that are disappeared and have never been found, presumed murdered, but you don't have anything to test. But in this case, you have two bodies, you have clothing, you have all that other stuff, and then the hairs. Have that done. Have it done. Look into it. Uh, Contact the guy that developed it is actually a paleontologist. So he was trying to get uh, DNA from things hundreds of years old. And so he just stumbled into this and was able to get it from the shaft of a hair, which is Another huge milestone in DNA processing. Coyd, I talked to you maybe uh, four months ago or something, and I remember you saying a pretty shocking, you said basically uh, DNA testing in the last year had had evolved more than it had in maybe the 10 years before it or something like that. Will you just talk about what you had, had said about DNA in general? Yeah, what I said is forensic science, especially in the DNA realm, has increased more in the last two years than in the previous 25 years. Wow. Wow. It's huge. It's huge. Yeah. So you just gotta, but it, the DNA is not going to develop itself, right? Somebody has to do it, has to order it, and has to use modern techniques. Don't send it for studdings and swabbings or that stuff. Use If you don't have a DNA or an MVAC machine, find somebody that does and do it. And then if you get... DNA and it's not encoded, then reach out to one of these companies that does genealogy. So I have a question about police departments across the United States in general. How easy is it for the victim's family to get this stuff tested, to convince the officers to get it done? Because I feel like we could raise the $5,000 and rally and get this done, but it would be, if it was that easy, everybody would be doing it. Yeah. Somebody, somebody in the police department has to be on board because I mean, you can, the family can't have evidence tested. It's just it's just a matter of you know having the police department understand, and then you know that maybe they think it because they haven't had experience with it. Sometimes they think it's hocus pocus, or they think it's too expensive. We can't afford it. Well, how much is this little girl's life worth? Right, it's four or five thousand bucks if you have to go the genealogy route. Is cheap, and you can find you know, whole fundraisers if you need to you know, to get it. People would contribute. But the, um, yeah, the MVAC is available. I mean, like Washington State, our crime lab has eight MVACs. Not every not every state does. I don't know if Missouri does, but I know a lot of private labs that do, and I can refer somebody to a private lab that does. So you're you're saying we really could raise the money, and that really would influence them to do this? Well, if money is the, the reason they're saying we can't afford it, it's expensive. It is, you know, I understand that a police department like Springfield, Missouri, doesn't have a bunch of extra money sitting around. But I mean, if it's only say, let's say, with everything done. If you had to have the backing done, you had to have the processing done, you had to have genealogy done, maybe it's $10,000, right? How hard would it be in the community to raise 10000 bucks? Not that hard. 
because everybody would be on board. You could do whatever you want to do and have fundraisers and then give it to the police department to do that. And if that, if they're willing, again, the police department has to be willing to do that. Okay. So tell us this, if we were going to approach the police department and ask, how would you advise we go about that? Because that's what we want our next step to be. I, I would say is, there are modern ways to extract DNA that were never available before, such as the MVAC and some other things. And and then the genealogy and stuff. And we understand that costs money. And you may think, oh, we don't have the money to do that. But what if we gave you the funding for that? What if we could find funding? Then it's just a matter of you to ask for the test. But they're the, they're the custodians of the evidence. Their case, no one can do it for them. They have to do it themselves. But it's a pretty small thing to ask if all you're doing is filling out a form and sending this stuff off. Do families across the United States um, run into this this barrier where police departments don't yeah, cooperate? I, I hear all the time from small agencies that we would do that, but we just don't have the money. And I say, well, you know, you can get federal grants for some of this stuff, <laughs> you know, but you can, but there's also, you know, get money. Start a foundation, not, not just for this. How about the uh, Springfield, Missouri Police Foundation, where you get all the businesses in, involved, and they regularly have fundraisers to put money away, and the police department goes to the foundation and says, hey, we need money for this, and you fund it. And then their board of directors says yes or no. That's a, The Seattle Police Department has a foundation. They raise millions of dollars that way. But, but it's sm- it'd be smaller on a smaller police department, but you know, if, if we're talking $10,000, $20,000, that's pretty reasonable that you can get that not just for this but for other things they need the police department may need money for very good thank you for your insight we appreciate you we're very excited lloyd steiger is an author seattle's forgotten serial killer gary gene grant can you tell us about your new book well it's just about uh, i was working my current job and i got an email from somebody and he says, what do you know about Gary Jean grant he was killing people in renton which is a suburb of seattle in the 60s and 70s and I said, I've never heard of him. And I thought I'd known about all the local serial killers, right? Although there are plenty of local serial killers in Washington state. But, uh, so I did some research and I was able to get the court record and I scanned it and read it all out and for my current job. Well, then I got a call from this publishing company saying, Hey, we're doing, uh, we're looking for true crime, semi historic cases, like more than 10 or 12 years old. Do you know any cases like that? And it was like, are you kidding me? I'm, as a matter of fact, I do. <laughs> so they said, had me write a proposal. I sent it in to History Press, and they sent me back and said, write the book. So I did, and uh, it was just a good opportunity, and I enjoy writing. So I, it, it's just a, it's a terribly sad case where two teenage girls and then two six-year-old boys were murdered by this guy who himself started out at 18 years old when he started over a four-year period of time. And it's just a terrible, sad case, but you know, the, everybody says, Nobody needs to know about him. No, but you got to remember the victims. Nobody remembers the victims. So that's what it's about. That's right. That's right. Um, you can order that book on Amazon. Again, it's Seattle's Forgotten Serial Killer, Gary Jean Grant. It's Cloyd Steiger's newest book. Cloyd, it was a pleasure talking to you. This was really insightful. I, I hope we've asked a lot of the questions that the listeners would want to. This was a really deep dive. And uh, man, really appreciate your insight. Hey, no problem, Jay. And if you guys have other things, you think, oh, we should ask them that. Just set this up again. It's no big deal. Cool. Thank you, Cloyd. Thank you so much. Yes, thank sure you. Thing. We love your podcast. I refer it to everybody. I refer everybody to it, and I've got a lot of positive uh, feedback on it. Thank well, you. We thanks, Cloyd. That. You can find the audio from the man I tracked down that was arrested for the murder of Shirley Jane Rose in the next bonus episode.
and you can judge for yourself. The Toll Podcast, The Path Back Home, is a production of The Toll, LLC. Reproduction or use of any part of this podcast without the express permission of The Toll, LLC, is prohibited. Get updates from our website, thetollpodcast.com. If you feel the toll, review it, like it, and share it. Thank you.